things. As is so often, it's always the younger generation, I think, that, yeah. that, that takes that innovation and builds off the shoulders of, of the past. Okay, hello everyone. I'm very pleased to have uh, my good friend, uh, an old friend and dear expedition member, uh, Philippe uh, Cousteau, and uh, his lovely wife, Ashlyn Gorse Cousteau. Philippe and I, you and I met, uh, I always like try to count back now, it's 20 years. 20 years. 20 years ago, maybe, yeah. a, little, maybe a little longer, yeah. 20? Yeah, I was, 20? I was 18, so I'm 38 now, so it was 20 years ago this, this year. Yeah, yeah, you were a young whippersnapper, mm -hmm. and uh, <laughs> I remember you uh, walking down the, the front uh, steps of Teddy Tucker's house mm -hmm. in Bermuda. That's right. And you had those long French flippers, remember that, big, big uh, beautiful, uh, I recognize those as the French style. And, uh, and we went out um, and dove with shipwrecks around Bermuda together and uh, forged a, uh, the beginning of a, a relationship that has lasted to this day and will go on for many, many decades to come. And uh, Philippe, I've just really enjoyed watching your career uh, over, these, over these decades. Very proud of what you've done, uh, carrying forward uh, the legacy of your family, but also creating your own legacy. And you've done a, you've done a really good job at it. You've, You've carved out uh, a niche that we very much need in this society. And Ashlyn, it's been such a great pleasure meeting you through Philippe, and I see the two of you as such a team, but you bring, you bring this enormous pillar uh, of your own from your background in journalism. Uh, so I see the two of you as, uh, as real stars, not rising stars, you are stars uh, in our ocean community, and I thank you for all the, all the work that you do. Um, so the, the idea behind this is really for us to uh, have a conversation, and uh, I want to talk to you, and I'd like to be a conversation between us, but also share with our listeners some uh, our insights about the ocean uh, and perhaps uh, places that our listeners can go go to. And, you know, I, I'd like to start off with a quote uh, of your grandfather. And, uh, you know, I'm a tremendous fan of, of your grandfather. I'm The reason I've had a career in the oceans is because of him. I grew up outside of Boston, in a, in a rural area, not close to the ocean. And I used to count the days between those Jacques Cousteau documentaries on TV. They were always <laughs> Sunday nights. <laughs> and when they uh, came around, you know, I'd, I'd get my mask and flippers out and uh, sit there on the living room floor and, and watch, that, watch that show. And that led me uh, to my career in, in oceanography. So I'd like to start off to honor... Uh, you and Ashlyn and your grandfather with one of his many quotes. He was a very quotable he was. man. Uh, and this one is, The sea, once it casts its spell, holds one in its net of wonder forever. It's and one of my favorites. Is it one of your favorites? It is one of my favorites. And um, uh, as you said, of so many of his, but that, that is a particularly, I think, poignant one. Yeah, you know, that, the thing, the ocean, uh, it does have that, uh, that hook, doesn't it? I, you know, whether it's an Uber driver, uh, uh, a university history professor, by the way, I noticed you have a degree in history. I do. Which I didn't That's know right. until I did this. Uh, I did, like any good host, I did research on you, even though you're a good friend. <laughs> good job, I Greg. I discovered a few things about you. Um, everybody's got this thing about the ocean. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I mean, everybody. I, I don't think it's, it's a rarity to find someone that goes, eh, I don't like the ocean or I'm not interested. And what was it? Let's start with you, Ashlyn, mm -hmm. for this one. What? What was it that, uh, what was your first memory of the ocean? Or do you, do you, is there anything like for me, it was, you know, watching it on TV, basically. Uh, it took years before I actually got in the ocean. But what, what was it for you that, uh, was there a memory or one or two things that you remember about it that got you going? Or I mean, for me, um, 
I've always been a water baby. Uh, so my parents would joke that even uh, after it rained and there was a puddle, I would try to sit in it and swim in it. Um, so I have just always been fascinated with water, with swimming, with floating. I still joke that that's my favorite thing to do on vacation is float. Yep. Just literally just want to float. Um, but you know, and in, in looking at the ocean behind us right now, I mean, it is just this amazing, vast destination where you can really find anything you want in it. If you want to find fish, you can find them, hopefully in the future also. <laughs> You, if you want to find emptiness, you can find it. If you want to find adventure, you can find it. And I think, you know, as as humans evolved, we looked at that as with wonder, with amazement, with hope, with fear. Because mm. even people that are afraid of the ocean mm. are still intrigued by yeah, it. Right, they are. I know and what you, mean, yeah. you know, it's just it is. It's a lot of people see the ocean as a space that divides us. But I look at the ocean as a space that connects all of us. It connects every single human being on this planet. You know, to be honest with you, that rolled off my, my brain and my shoulders for many years, not really thinking about it. But when there's water, there's the possibility of this miraculous process taking place where a molecule, you know, hydrogen and oxygen, can pick up another atom, carry it into an organism, and carry that nutrient to the organism's stomach where it's deposited and then it's picked up again by water and carried someplace else. It's kind of like a, a mule. Water's the water molecule, if you, if you will. But it's like a mule. It, it carries things around. And then in our case, of course, when you add salt, presto, you've got the ocean mm -hmm. and, and magic. So um, that's, a, that's, a great, that's a great memory. I was the same way, you know, it was, uh, swimming pools. Oh, man, if anybody has a swimming pool, I wanted to go to their house right now. And, yeah, in, in well, I, I realized at a young age that um, I wanted to be a mermaid. Um, <laughs> then I think after, you know, science class, I realized that probably wasn't a thing that would happen in my lifetime. Um, and funny enough, the first night I met Philippe, uh, he was giving a speech about the BP oil spill because uh, he had just he gone diving. He did great coverage on that, yeah. It was incredible. You won an award. Didn't you get an Emmy for that or something? Not an Emmy, but we uh, won a National Headliner Award, yeah. which is another journalist award here. Uh, and then we... Um, um, but I worked with lots of different networks on it, and and it was pretty. It was pretty. Yeah, thank intense. you for that. And congratulations on the award. Yeah. And I think it was just it was so important. And and when I met Philippe that night, um, as silly as it may sound, I thought to myself, huh, I might actually be able to be a mermaid with this guy. <laughs> That's true. This if is I the closest you'll get, right? If I, if I learn how to scuba dive, I could be a mermaid. And if for some reason we ever end up having a child, it might have gills. Yeah. This might actually work out for me. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to put you on the spot, babe. No, no, I, I like that story. I was in. in. But I, and I think because of that and my journalist background, once I started, you know, Philippe and I really started getting serious and, and dating, and I started getting more entrenched into the work that he was doing, specifically in our oceans and, and, and educating youth, you know, that's when I realized, okay, I can use my skill set and I can reach back into everything that I've learned being on an entertainment show and I can make these things interesting, I can make them fun, and when we can make science and make learning fun, that's when people get excited. And if we can reach out to not just the converted, when we talk about these things, and by converted, I mean many of the people listening to this uh, to this podcast. You know, the people that know that our oceans are in trouble, the people that know that our environment is facing huge uphill battles. But I want to talk to the people that don't necessarily seek that out. I want to talk to the people that go home every night and watch The Bachelor. I want to talk to the people that you know buy their clothes uh, at fast fashion, you know, fast fashion retailers. 
No, those are the people that I want to talk to because those are the people that can make a big difference in our planet. They have the power. Well, I think the, uh, the cross step that you did in your career from uh, really very high level uh, mainstream entertainment journalism, uh, TV journalism, into the environmental space, it gives you special ability and we need that. You know, we, we have people that have done the same thing their whole lives and, and while there's, there's, there's a lot of value in that, and uh, we are live from the coast of California here. Uh, outside, PCH is right there. PCH the water is right here us, yeah. at the intersection of Sunset Boulevard and PCH, and to that motorcycle. Uh, <laughs> the uh, the cross stepping, I think, really adds strength to the message. And uh, and I, I I find more and more in, in my work and in my life that people that are lateral thinkers, that can connect from one subject area to another and to another to another are the ones that uh, that really can make the change. It's like the Renaissance. We're in a Renaissance now. I call it the ocean Renaissance. And we need uh, people like yourself, journalists, to uh, uh, come, bring bring your history, bring your diverse background, and, and let's, let's apply it to the ocean. And in your case, very romantic story. Uh, so you saw him up on the stage, and uh, you must have thought he was cute, huh? Oh, uh, he was totally cute. <laughs> um, I was not planning on spending the whole evening at the speech. We were just going to go say hello and wave and, and leave. Uh, and when Philippe walked in, uh, our eyes met and I thought, wow, the guy on the poster looked really dorky. This guy is really cute. So the, the, the photo on the poster was of me in on, uh, in Louisiana on the beaches with mud and 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 oil everywhere and um, I wearing had, mandals yes because I was in the Man water sandals. I was in Man the water uh, so I had you know some waterproof sandals on and um, so in my defense it was very the wardrobe was appropriate for where I was. Yes, I was just being very judgy. <laughs> she was, and I will fully admit that I was being very judgy. And I was expecting a, you know, kind of dorky gentleman to walk through the door. And instead, Ryan Gosling walked in. And I was like, a.k.a. Philippe's twin. Um, and I was like, oh, my gosh, that guy's cute. And we just hit it off. And that was it. Well, I think the uh, the, the fire <laughs> in your uh, your relationship is evidenced in your your work and the, and the, the work you do on TV, uh, bringing people uh, stories about the ocean. It's all about storytelling. All about it is, and it always has been, you know, in, in, and I should say just what a thrill it is here to, to spend some time with you, Greg, on, on this, and an honor to be part of this, uh, this inaugural podcast. Um, but, you know, it's been such a pleasure in, in, in my life. And actually, I was just thinking about it. I think it was 16, actually. So it was 22 years ago that we I first I think you were 16. I was, was going to say, right? yeah, you were a young fellow. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and what an influence that had on me. You know, my grandfather, Jacques Cousteau, was... An incredible man, and I—he passed away when I was about 17 years old. So I did know him pretty well. Saw him a few times a year, but he was older uh, by the time I was in my teens, and wasn't really going on an expedition. So I didn't grow up on Calypso, like a lot of people assume. You know, his famous ship. I wasn't on an expedition since I could walk, um, because my father, Philippe Senior, passed away six months before I was born, and. And so that part of my legacy of exploration and the oceans, et cetera, was one that I saw on television and I, and I watched the movies and I read the books that they did, but I never really got to have a hands-on experience uh, until I was 16. And my mother said, listen, there are a couple people. Uh, one of them was Dr. Eugenie Clark, uh, an incredible you know, pioneer in oceanography yeah. and, and a dear friend of yours I know. Yeah. Um, and she's leading an expedition to Papua New Guinea. Would you like to go? And I said, absolutely. 
And so I had this amazing adventure with Jeannie and diving and doing research for weeks out in Papua New Guinea in the middle of nowhere. Um, and then she said, another place I want you to go is visit with our dear friends, the Tuckers, who were good <laughs> friends of my mother and father when they spent uh, a couple months in Bermuda filming back 30, 40 years ago. And, um, and so, uh, and that Peter Benchley and Greg Stone are going to be there. And these are incredible people. And this is another part of your opportunity to at least start to experience a little bit of, of, of your legacy. And Joe um, McGinnis. And Joe McGinnis was there as well, yeah, actually. He yeah. was good friends with my father. Yeah. And um, so that trip to Bermuda was really formative for me and uh, uh, in terms of, of launching me on this path and, and helping me to realize while I grew up fascinated by the oceans and, and adventure and expeditions, the idea of them, I had never really experienced them. And uh, experiencing them with you, Greg, and, and with Jeannie in Papua New Guinea is, uh, and, and George Buckley from Harvard on, on the third trip was down to Bonaire. Oh, yeah, George, yeah. Uh, were really formative for me and, and launched me on my career. So it's, it's, it's fun to listen to you talk about how you watched shows <laughs> of my grandfather and that really launched you in that. And, and while those shows did for me, it was the hands-on experience I had and the kindness and warmth from you and Teddy oh. and, and everybody uh, um, that really welcomed and embraced me into this kind of world of exploration that, that inspired me. So um, it's, a, it's a thrill to be here today. Well, that's, that's really, really very nice to hear that, Philippe. And I, I do remember that, that expedition vividly and you, uh, you know, because, you know, let's, say, let's face it, your name preceded you, right? You know, Cousteau is the... It's the gold standard in oceans for all of us. And Teddy Tucker, who I always want to honor whenever I hear his name, was mm -hmm. my greatest mentor. Terrific and, and guy. Took me uh, from a very inexperienced uh, teenager to uh, to the ocean. He really was a very important driver in my life. And he was a, he was a, he was close to your father. I, I'm, I'm, he was. I'm, I'm he think was. from that time. Yeah. And I remember that on that trip in Bermuda when I first met you. I was on the boat down at the end of the dock uh -huh. with Teddy. Yep. And then this young guy comes walking down with those long flippers I mentioned earlier. <laughs> and I remember Teddy... Gawky, like you could be, you don't have to be nice, like a lanky, gawky you uh, were, uh, uh, kid. Is this when you had yeah. the ponytail or no you ponytail? Very, no, this was pre-ponytail. Okay, pre-ponytail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you were very humble and understated and just a really great guy, sweet guy. Sweet guy, you really were. You know, because I, I didn't know what to expect, actually. And t you came down, I remember Teddy bellowed out like he used to talk, and he said, oh, look at you, you look just like your dad. <laughs> <laughs> do you remember that? He was a lanky, yes, I do. Yeah. He was, because uh, my dad was tall and skinny, and so was my grandfather, so yeah, yeah that runs yeah. in the family. And, uh, <laughs> and we went out, and you, 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 uh, you, you were, what I liked about you is you were taking it all in. You weren't saying a lot. You were, you were, you were drinking it in. Because you were you were hanging out with uh, with your dad's friends, mm -hmm. you know, and I didn't know your dad. Unfortunately, I would I would have liked to. I was sort of a kind of a half a generation back from yeah. him. Uh, but Teddy and Joe and those guys, and I could see a transfer of something special on that trip. You know, people that were close to your father, and you know, and you you know, you didn't know your dad because of the the circumstances around that. But there was a I felt a transfer happening. I don't. Does that was that happening there? It was Absolutely, almost, it was like your debutante. You were coming out. It was your coming out part? That was that, and and uh, was was a huge influence on me, and and just seeing this this group of guys who were jovial and friendly, and so nice, and so smart and accomplished in their own right, um, and and just seeing what that experience was like, and imagining that's what my father experienced for all those decades, and why he fell in love yeah. with with the adventure and with oceans and with exploration, and uh, I caught the bug. Yeah. The apple, the apple doesn't fall far, because that, because that, because that group is does not, it does not suffer fools, right? They, they, 
you have to hit a certain standard to get in, and you were right in. You just had the, you had the right the right bounce, the right attitude. And then then uh, I recall uh, maybe the next year, the year after, I asked you to come to the New England Aquarium to give a talk. This big fundraising gala thing at the New England Aquarium <laughs> in Boston. Uh, something I you know I would have been nervous speaking in front of. And here's a guy who hadn't spoken much. And and you know and with your name comes expectations. Yep, it you does. Know, and you've got a that's a tough part of it too. Well, you stood up there, man. You had that audience in the palm of your hands, and you read a, <laughs> you read a note, I recall, a letter your father had actually written you, when you were, in in, uh, your mo- your mother still. I think it was no. I think it was a letter from my grandfather in eulogy to my father. Okay. Okay. Was it was a, yeah. it was a pers- very pers- you shared yeah. with us something very personal, and uh, you really connected, and uh, I don't think there was a dry eye in the house, uh, <laughs> and you really. Spectacular! Uh, so I was honored to see the beginning of that, and then next thing I know, I see you on CNN. You're the CNN correspondent, and you've you uh, you really picked up the torch and uh, have uh, have carried it carried it forward. And it's uh, it's taken you all over the world. What can you tell us? Like, is there any place or dive that comes to mind? Uh, people ask me this all the time, so you can pick one. Doesn't have to be the one, but. The, the most important, the scariest, the most beautiful, the, just something that... Like... Yeah, easy, easy question to answer, actually. My, my, the best dive I've ever participated in um, was in the Red Sea on a reef called Shabrumi, which means Roman reef in Arabic. And it was the reef where my grandfather and father did Conshelf II, which was the, the famous expedition and experiment where they put a habitat uh, underwater on a reef for a month, about 60 feet. And aquanauts lived, saturated and lived on that habitat for a full month. And it was a revolution because nobody knew if people could survive living underwater. What were the physiological effects, et cetera? And there's bits of it left. Really? Uh, there on Shabrumi Reef. Not wow. the habitat, but some of this. They had a little garage for their little yellow submarine. And they had shark cages. And they had tool, out, on, tool sheds in the water where they hide their scooters. And... And um, a, a, a shark cage down at about 150 feet or so. And I was filming a, a series called Oceans for the BBC that I was a co-host on. And um, we went diving in the ruins of Conshelf 2 on Shabrumi Reef and then went around the corner to like this beautiful reef wall that was just covered in coral. And uh, silky sharks, reef sharks, schooling hammerheads, massive grouper all in one dive. And, um, and I, I maintain to this day that if there is a Garden of Eden on Earth, it is a Red Sea Coral Reef, Greg. And, and um, all these years later, later uh, I have, um, I'm now working on a project actually in Saudi Arabia, uh, also on coral in the Red Sea. And, you know, incidentally, it's, it's interesting because uh, I think a lot of people don't appreciate that it was 75 years ago this year that my grandfather co-invented with an engineer named Emile Gagnon the aqualung or scuba diving. When's the anniversary? This year is the 75th anniversary. Okay. And that's a lifetime that we have truly been exploring the oceans. Prior to that, you know, it was pioneers like William Beebe and, and, uh, you know, you also had hands-on divers with the big hard helmets that clomped around on the bottom. Um, You had that kind of of technology and, and experimentation that was happening. But in terms of my, really what made my grandfather's vision different was the ability to swim freely like a fish and scuba diving provided that opportunity and then you know he jury-rigged 
underwater cameras because those didn't really exist. And he, you know, worked with, um, um, you know, so many different uh, uh, Doc Edgerton on the underwater strobes and, you know, out of out of MIT. And and it was such an era of, of, of exploration. But we grew up with Nemo and with Shamu and with all these kind of images of the ocean today that we take for granted, I think, uh, when back just a lifetime ago, no one really knew what that was. So it's it's been a very short period of time, and you think relatively that human beings have been exploring the ocean and that we've learned what we've learned. It was a, it was a real, um, it, it, it was an inflection. It was a turning point. It was a, it was a, it was a paradigm change, really, what your grandfather did. Because, you know, if you look back over human history, some uh, physical anthropologists recently found some caves in South Africa in a place called Mossel Bay. Now, you know, sea levels are, are going up, we all know today, from sea level rise uh, from climate change. But they've fluctuated quite a bit mm -hmm. on their own when the, through the various ice ages. So a lot of the coastal areas have been washed clean of human habitation, but these caves were high enough that they were above the sea level rise maxima over the, over the time. And they dug around in there and they found evidence that we were living in these caves 200,000 years ago off of seafood, right? Now they, the story is that uh, there was a natural climate shift happening in Africa around the same time, so the interior parts were too hot. So we think that was the first time that we got to the coast. Huh. Now, I love to, in my brain, you know, do kind of an Einstein thought experiment and think about that tribe of hominids that have been living in the savannah and it was too hot, so they're making their way. And that day they push those bushes apart and there's this big blue body of water. They probably thought it was fresh water at first. And they went down and lo and behold, you can pick up clams. They're really highly nutritious food. That you could back in the, that time, you could you could probably grab fish out of the tide pools. There would have been plenty of fish. Yeah. So we took up residence in these caves, and that's probably when we began to swim and dive. And you know, we're the only animal on the planet that can run a mile, swim a mile, climb a tree, and dive underwater like 30 or 40 feet. Now think about that. We are uniquely. I that's think that's a great point. I never thought about that. Yeah, me neither. Huh. And I wonder. I wonder if it wasn't that time along the coast 200,000 years ago where we developed this, this relationship, you know, with the ocean. And I would argue that from that point forward, the ocean remained this goal. We always wanted to get out there. We wanted to get under it for curiosity, for food, for any number of reasons. And if you look back over history, you know, there were all these attempts. You know, Alexander the Great made a diving bell uh, that uh, lowered it underwater. Any coastal culture you go to uh, that has a long history, continuous history, thousands of years, they have tremendous uh, diving abilities. Uh, the Carib Indians, the uh, mm -hmm. look in Japan, the Ama divers. Yep, this yep. Uh, at least 2,000 years, then, and they're always women, and they can dive down and they can collect seafood and whatnot. And then, as you say, there were the heavy diving gear, but it was when your grandfather invented the two-stage regulator that suddenly the guy down at the gas station that pumps gas could go down to Sears and buy a set of gear. And the ocean was finally accessible after all that time. And that was, I believe, uh, your grandfather was in the Fr French Navy, wasn't he? He was in the French Navy. An interesting story about that background is uh, my grandfather had a passion for flight. He wanted to be a pilot in the French Navy at the time, this is the 1930s. And uh, when, in fact, uh, he really had no knowledge or interest in the ocean. Uh, hmm. And he was, he had enrolled in the Naval Aviation Program and had a car accident not long afterwards, visiting friends, uh, driving on the windy roads of southern France and, and crashed his car and broke his back. 
And uh, he was, because of that injury, actually eliminated from the a Naval Aviation Program, uh, which was a devastating uh, occurrence for him, of course, because his dream was to fly. Now, I like to think of it as the most fortuitous <laughs> car accident in history for two reasons. Changed history. Because yeah. uh, it, it truly did change history, but also because every single member of his graduating class from the Naval Aviation Program was killed in the early days of World War II. And that was before my father was born. And so I literally wouldn't be here if it wasn't for that car accident. But we all very likely wouldn't be here having this conversation in the same way because uh, that, uh, that car accident, he was washed out of the Naval Aviation Program. He was told to swim in the Mediterranean Ocean to rebuild the strength. Mm. And so uh, a, a captain, a man named Philippe Taillez, who my father was named after and thus I'm named after, gave my grandfather a pair of homemade goggles to free dive with. And this love affair with the ocean began. But it also spawned a frustration that my grandfather was frustrated by the limits of breath hold diving, two, three, four minutes you can spend underwater. Mm. And so um, he then set out to try and solve that problem. And, and when people think about my grandfather, they think about this lanky Frenchman with a red hat and a funny accent and a big nose, <laughs> um, uh, you know, who was an explorer and, 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 a, and a poet and an author and a filmmaker and, and so many things. Um, I like to think of him first and foremost as a problem solver. And that's really, I think, the legacy of Cousteau is of solving problems. Because he saw a problem that he wanted to spend more time underwater. And you know what? He didn't let the fact that nothing existed deter him. He met and found and sought out an engineer who had invented this industrial valve that could take gases under pressure to ambient air pressure on demand. And they tinkered for years to try and shrink it down, put it on a tank, and could we breathe off of this underwater? And they did. And they changed the world. And he, they, the underwater cameras didn't exist, so he created them and worked with people to tinker and invent them. These the small little submersibles that he was developing. Uh, so many techniques and tools and resources and ideas that really were about a response to a problem. And really in the beginning, what I think a lot of people don't realize is, is that my grandfather wasn't about conservation. There wasn't really this idea, as, as you know, Greg, of mm. ocean conservation. Um, terrestrial conservation was still relatively a new concept that was beginning to take on. Um, around the world, but predominantly, you know, in the United States with the national parks and the growth of our national park system. But oceans were still this place that we just pulled food out of and dumped trash into. And in the beginning, my grandfather was all about exploration. And it really wasn't until the 19, early 1960s with my father that when, when he was a young man, that they were on expedition in the Mediterranean and the Red Sea. Um, and they were able to see with their own eyes the decline in the health of the Mediterranean that had just happened since the 1950s and the late 1940s. So, you know, post-World War II, in about 15, 20 years, the Mediterranean suffered a great deal. And they came back from that expedition. They said, this is no longer just about exploration. This is about conservation. They were seeing it disappear before their very eyes. And, and that ultimately, I think, became the biggest problem that he sought to solve was how do we build the sustainable oceans? Because he recognizes, Ashton so eloquently said, the oceans truly do unite us. They are food, our water, air, climate, and all those different issues that, that, that we all are so familiar with. Um, but, but at the end of the day, it was really about problem solving. He really was prescient on the environmental front, though, you, you, you and your father. I, um, I think it, as well known as the Cousteau name is connected with the ocean, I don't think it actually gets enough credit for pioneering the modern environmental movement. I think that it really was uh, 
the voice, especially of your father, the combination of your father and your grandfather, those two, uh, through the National Geographic, began to really blow the environmental horn way before anybody else was doing that. Um, I've, I've, I've noticed that uh, over, as I've looked at it, there's a, there's a documentary that came out, a French documentary uh, about your father, basically. Uh, and I saw it on a Lufthansa flight. A feature film, it was a film. It was yeah, a, it was a, a, it was a feature, feature film, feature actually, film. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, they didn't have subtitles in it, or they didn't translate it. Um, and I don't speak or understand French, but I didn't have to, because I knew the story so well. <laughs> and and they, uh, they really showed that, how uh, your father started trumpeting uh, the decline of the oceans yeah. in the late 60s, early 70s. As it's so often, it's always the younger generation, I think, that, yeah. that, that takes that innovation and builds off the shoulders of, of the past. But yeah, Ted Turner uh, referred to my grandfather as the, as the father of the environmental movement. And um, um, I, 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 you know, I agree I do with think that. And, I, and I'd like to see that acknowledgement uh, pushed, out there, uh, pushed out there more. Uh, uh, oddly enough, your, your, your grandfather is usually identified as an oceanographer, a marine biologist. Yes. <laughs> and yet he was the first one to always say that he was not. I mean, he was a <laughs> naval captain yeah, a uh, and never took credit for being a scientist. Yeah. Um, he provided platforms for scientists. Yeah. But yes, people would often refer to him. They often refer to me as an oceanographer, marine biologist, and I am also the first one to say, no, I actually have a master's degree in history. I don't, I'm not a scientist, um, but I seek to tell those stories. I'm a storyteller, but yeah, people people tended to lump him and that was an annoyance for him because he always said, you know, I didn't earn that title. I didn't, I'm not a scientist. I, I'm, I don't have a PhD. I'm not doing all those things. Well, and I don't want credit for those things if I didn't do them. So he was the first one to correct people. Well, one thing, I think people get a little too hung up sometimes on degrees, you, I always try to remind people that the first person that ever got a PhD got it from someone who didn't have a PhD. <laughs> <laughs> it's, That's right. That's I'm, right. A, I'm a firm believer in a PhD equivalency uh, <laughs> in, in life. I like that. <laughs> and uh, I think I think certainly that both of you and your and the people where your father and grandfather would fall in that category. But you know what? I wonder why uh, you know they they sounded the horn, the clarion call. Um, but then it feels like there was a big pause. Let, well, let, let's say, I would say that your, your grandfather ushered in the a doctrine, the age of the ocean, uh, a whole paradigm uh, opened up for us because the ocean, you know, as we sit here off the, uh, we can look at it where we're sitting and it's a beautiful, opaque, serene interface. And you can't see underwater. And therefore we didn't know what was down there. The, the, the creatures, the giant squids, the sharks. I'd go so far as to say that the, the Cousteau uh, family, uh, started by your grandfather, carried on so ably by his, uh, by, by his children and now you, uh, ushered in the age of the ocean. This is sort of a doctrine where suddenly that opaque surface that we couldn't see under, it was revealed to us and it came to us in stories, it came to us in films, it came to us in, in everyday people being able to, to go underwater and, and scuba dive. It started, uh, it, it, it augmented modern oceanography. It started after that period. And also the environmental voice that was so strong, uh, especially with your father. But then I would say there was, there's been a pause. It's like the oceans got put off to the side while the world began to look after other things. Uh, terrestrial uh, conservation moved forward and our awareness of, of forests, our awareness of agricultural practices, things like that. But the main driver of all life on Earth is the ocean. It, it's what makes this place a nice place to live, the ocean. It provides most of our oxygen. It provides food. The oceans are the main driver of life on Earth. We, all, we know that. It's been established scientifically, stabilizes climate. Uh, mo most of the oxygen we're breathing right now is from the ocean. 
A billion people get their daily protein from the ocean every day, and it's a very high-quality source of protein. We'd be in a very bad way without an ocean. As a matter of fact, you've got plenty of examples in our own solar system of what life would be like here without mm -hmm. an ocean. Yet, there was a pause in the 1970s, the 1980s, the 1990s. The oceans continued a very precipitous state of decline from overfishing, uh, coastal development wiped out... Uh, Coral reefs, mangroves, sea seagrass communities, a very, very bad state of affairs. And then there's been a, a, an awareness has popped, I feel, in the last uh, 10 years or so, and I call it the ocean renaissance, where we're beginning to, to take the lessons learned from the days of your grandfather and take modern science and really begin to... We, now we know the problem, we've started some solutions, but we haven't solved the problem by any means. The very best, I think we've slowed the rate of decline in ocean health, but it's still... It's still on the downturn. And I, I wonder, why is that? Why, why have we not woken up earlier to the, how important the oceans are? I mean, remember when uh, the famous picture of Earthrise over the moon, Bill Anders, the astronaut, took that picture and, you know, it was blue. Mm -hmm. You would have thought, hey, there's something there. And then Voyager, the famous Voyager uh, unmanned spacecraft, when it was just about to leave the gravitational influence of the sun, Carl Sagan talked the engineers at NASA to turn the spacecraft around and take one last picture of Earth. And it was far in the distance. It was just one pixel in the camera they had in those days. And that pixel was blue. Still, we didn't get it. But finally, I feel like we've turned that corner. Why has there been this big pause? Why, was it because your father passed away and Cousteau died? We didn't have that voice, that storytelling voice? Or, and, and, and more importantly, what is it going forward? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm looking for your guidance, for your wisdom, because it's imperative the Earth, uh, we Earthlings on this spaceship, so eloquently described by Buckminster Fuller, everything we've ever had, everything we ever will have is on the Earth right now. And the main thing on this spacecraft, the spaceship Earth, is the ocean, and we've got to take care of it. So what happened and what needs to happen into the future? Well, I just want to say one thing real quick. I think one of the issues is out of sight, out of mind, right? People have a really hard time relating to the ocean and the things in it. We understand trees, we're surrounded by them. We see, you know, the terrestrial landscape, I think is easier for people to connect to. And so, yes, I think my father's passing did actually have, have an impact. I know it had an impact on my grandfather's work and, and a lot of his work uh, declined through the 80s. Uh, my father died in 1979. Um, but, you know, there are many other people out there with an incredible voice, incredible leadership. But the, the, the storytelling, I think, has been uh, lacking. Uh, really effective storytelling in the last few decades. You know, I, I think that what happens in the ocean a lot of times is you can't really see it. If the things that we were, are doing to our ocean on a daily basis happened on land, people would be absolutely outraged. Uh, if you take trawling, you. Yep. Right? take trawling for instance, yeah. they go in with a big giant scooper, they drag it on the bottom floor, they kill everything from corals to turtles to fish to this. I mean, the bycatch is sometimes 10, 100 fold. If that happened on land, people would be outraged. If to kill, to get chicken for dinner, you went out and you killed every single squirrel, bird, Rodent, uh, <laughs> lizard, snake within yeah. a couple hundred feet. It's almost like cutting down, the, cutting down the yeah. forest for a squirrel. Right? Exactly. Is that what it's like? Yeah, exactly. People would lose their shit. Yeah. Excuse my language. That's right. People would lose their shit. And the fact that that is what happens every single day for shrimp out on the ocean and the people that just don't think about it. Um, 
We know a lot of ocean lovers and advocates and animal rights people who love shrimp and don't realize that, like, it's the most unsustainable fishery out there. And for every pound of shrimp that's caught, you're killing, as Ashton said, sharks and crabs and it's number one killer of dolphins in the Gulf of Mexico and sea turtles and on and on and on and on. Um, and you'd never get away with doing what you do in the ocean on land. That's a, that's a great point. And, and it's out of sight, out of mind. And so then the challenge is how do we do a better job of storytelling? My father and grandfather were such great storytellers. Um, but I, I think still one of our big challenges in the environmental movement is, you know, there's an amateurness to the storytelling. Um, that we forget the number one rule of communications, which is know your audience and speak to your audience. Right. Uh, I think so often in the environmental movement, because we are we have real passion and dedication and authenticity around really caring for these issues, but maybe not very sophisticated communications training. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so what we end up doing is we talk about what we care about. Right. Um, right. I do a, a TEDx talk, or I did a TEDx talk, and, and so did Ashlyn, actually from Antarctica, yeah. Uh, in January, last January, um, but I did uh, I, I did one in Washington D.C. and I and I threw up a, a photograph of a polar bear, and I asked how many of you, when you think about climate change in the audience, you think of this, and and everybody raised their hands. That's kind of the poster child yeah. of climate change: polar bears. And then I showed a picture of a little baby girl, and I said, okay, how many of you think about this when you think about climate change? And half a dozen people raised their hand, and and hmm. I think. That's the big challenge that we face in the environmental movement is that we've done a very good job, very poor job of really connecting the dots to the types of motivations that matter to people. And Ashlyn mentioned this earlier, and this is really important. I want to talk more about this, but this idea of how do we reach the converted? We are really, 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 really good at talking to the 10 or 20% of the public that already agrees with us. (laughs) We're really, really, really not good at connecting to people who don't agree with us yep. uh, or who don't have that perspective and, and, and relativity of understanding and caring about the oceans. We should, not enough people care about polar bears, clearly, to make climate change an issue that affects voters. There was not one single conversation or question about climate change in the presidential debates in the last election. So it's not an issue that's resonating. Oceans are not an issue that's resonating. And I think we as a community have to uh, take part of the blame for that. Yeah. Well, and when Philippe's talks about his grandfather, Jacques, as being an inventor. I think of him as a storyteller. And when I think of television and what the undersea world of Jacques Cousteau was in its actual form when you break it down, it was the world's first reality show. (laughs) It was a reality show. You went on that adventure, yes, because it was fun and you were going to cool places and things like that, but you watched because you yeah, wanted to see the human. It wasn't scripted. It was wasn't it? scripted. They had little red hats on. They would also they would smoke underwater. They would always and they drink, drink wine. wine underwater too. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Conch they did. Yeah. You wanted that experience. You wanted to be part of the crew. Yeah. 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 So yeah. for me, when I was in Antarctica, you know, my my speech and kind of this whole idea, and that's what I bring to this partnership, this marriage, this 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 relationship that we have, um, from a business standpoint, is how can we make saving the world more entertaining. Yeah. And you can do that in a bunch of different ways. You know, obviously there is a space for those hardcore docs that are very doom and gloom. People will sit down and watch those, they'll get very upset, and they, some of them will go on to some take action. But a lot of people won't even sit down and watch that film. Because you know, they don't agree with it, or because it's going to be too sad, yeah. or you know, it's it's like the people that still eat meat, but they don't want to know about where their meat comes from. That's just 
That's yeah. how their brain works. And you know what? Instead of telling them that that's wrong, I want to say, well, let's look at this argument from a different way. Or not argument, but let's let's try to approach you from a different angle. So, for instance, it, Jacques' show was an amazing show that was a reality show. Like, how can we how can we Kim Kardashian the shit out of our ocean? That's what I want to do. And that when we can do that, and we can make these stories interesting, and when we can reach out to the general public, to people that don't vote like we vote, to people completely across the other side of the aisle. Uh, that, you know, their jobs are completely different. You know, we need to talk to them, and we need to talk to them about what they care about. We need to talk to them about, you know, putting food on their table, uh, for having healthy kids. Um, you know, we need to find touch points, and we need to diversify. So we're always trying to, how can we diversify the people that we're talking to and make these stories interesting to them so that they seek it out? You know, and I think we also... we. I say we because I'm an environmental scientist. Get get a little preachy sometimes, and I think uh, I try to avoid that. And I think it's it is about storytelling. It's about bringing the ocean into our minds, into the consciousness. And it's very controversial, but I believe that Jaws, the movie Jaws, was actually on balance good for the oceans. And the reason I believe that is because it brought for the first time oceans up on the big screen. It got people thinking about the oceans. In fact, one of the reasons I'm an oceanographer is because I wanted to be Matt Hooper. I saw this cool guy up there on the screen. You know, he had a beard, he wore blue jeans, he was funny, he liked to drink wine. I mean, it was like a role model. And you could have portrayed, that was the first time an oceanographer was portrayed in the popular media. He could have had a white lab coat on with thick glasses. He was a cool dude. But he was a cool dude. And that led me to become, want to become an oceanographer. I'd, I had no interest at all in ocean conservation until later when I saw mm -hmm. the how bad things were out there. In fact, I saw... Uh, one of the, the turning points in my career was in the early 1990s, I was in a submarine diving off between uh, Korea and Japan in the Sea of Japan, and we went down 18,000 feet. And it took us three hours to, to sink down that deep, and we were exploring the life around this uh, epicenter of an earthquake that just occurred. We were looking at the what it did to the, it killed all the animals because of the, the shock waves and, the, and injected some uh, toxic gas uh, fluids out of the earth. But when I got down there, I saw plastic everywhere. Now, here's a place that hadn't seen the light of day for billions of years, and I know no one had been there. We were the first ones to go there, and it had already been spoiled. Now, that's mm -hmm. when I turned my scientific career into one that was focused on finding ways for us to get to get along with the ocean. I, I like to describe my work as <laughs> finding ways for modern the modern world and the ocean to coexist and support each other uh, in the modern world. So... So back to Jaws, I think that it uh, it injected uh, oceans for the first time, I think, in a big way. I mean, of course, there have been other movies about the ocean, but that was the first big blockbuster, and it got people thinking about it. Now, it didn't have a conservation ethic in it, but I think that was its, that was its eloquent uh, perfection. Instead, it got you interested in the ocean. And I know a lot of shark biologists that are shark biologists today because of that movie. I know several... Uh, a very accomplished, uh, uh, Brian Scarry, one of the great underwater photographers mm -hmm. of our day. Oh, Brian, he, pretty great guy. He, yeah, he's a good friend of ours, and he brings the ocean to us in a as a journalist for the conservation of the ocean, and it was because of Jaws that he got interested in the ocean. So I'm not promoting another movie about a, a, a shark, a demonic shark that takes over a resort community by any means, but I'm saying that we need to be broad-minded <laughs> yeah. yeah. about well, how we tell the stories and yes. what the stories yes. are. And, yes. well, and, and I think, you know, Ashton said, said, said it so well, you need Kim Kardashian in the oceans. I mean, what that means is really thinking about, okay, because you know, when my grandfather made the Undersea World of Jacques Cousteau in the, the 60s and, and, and 70s, 
you know, I think what was really fundamentally different about the media landscape is that your audience came to you, right? Because there were half a dozen channels on television and that was, you reached, when you had a show on Sunday nights, man, you could have 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 million people watching it. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and around the world, that was also the case. There were very few television channels. And so you had your audience coming to you. But now it's even more imperative and, and as we've seen cable grow and the diversity of choice grow in terms of the media that exists, uh, as Ashlyn said, we need to do a better job of diversifying how we tell those stories for different types of audiences, as you pointed out. You know, there's, right. there's the approach. We need to be unscripted. We need to be in reality television. We need to be looking at all of these uh, means to reach a broad audience of people and get them engaged and excited. But we don't do that as a community. We still focus on the odd ocean documentary that will be great to, again, mobilize the converted, but that's a small uh, segment of the population. And so I think we need to challenge ourselves, uh, and that's what we try and do in our media work, to think outside the box and to diversify our message and not just fall back on, on the old way of doing things because it's a, it's a vastly different world than it was just a few decades ago in terms of storytelling and media. So, so what do we do with this moment? I mean, I think... I think storytelling is how we get the message across. That's the first, the first, the first solution to any problem is becoming aware of the problem, mm-hmm. right? So we're aware of the problem, and you, both of you, do do a great job at that in person. And and I know I, I see it in your your TV and your documentary work. Okay, how does that then lead to change, and what should that change be? Ooh. Well, I think I think there's another. I think there's one, one, two issues here. When we talk mm-hmm. about storytelling, we're talking about the importance of broadening the audience of people that are aware of these issues and are exposed to them. Um, but that is one prong, I believe, of a, of a two-pronged attack and is, and is very much embedded in the work that we do, which is the education piece. Right. And that's the other place that we've fallen down in the environmental movement. We tend to focus on short-term technological and legislative fixes to problems. What we're not doing is, is, as we said, growing a constituency of people and, and, and the social growth and social movement. Uh, I can number, I can count the amount of foundations and groups that, that fund education on one hand. Yeah. Um, we have underinvested in education in, 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 in this country and in the environmental movement. Uh, you still talk to a lot of the old school kind of conservation organizations. They don't invest in conservation at, or education at all. Um, and, and the problem then is that we're not seeding and, uh, and growing a movement of uh, growing yeah. a constituents. Yeah. We need more yeah. constituents who vote for the ocean. We need more constituents who buy the ocean. We need people to be spending and changing their behavior. It's very hard to get an adult to change their behavior. We've done a lot of documentaries. Honestly, you know, and, and I've been a part of PSA campaigns and all this great stuff. And that's great. It mobilizes the converted and kind of keeps the army focused and, and, and motivated. But... I have never had someone come up to me who was not an already an ocean advocate, didn't believe in climate change, et cetera, and came up to me and said, wow, that 30-second public service announcement, man, that knocked my socks off and changed my worldview completely. <laughs> that doesn't happen. It's very hard to change people's perspective, right? So, but I have had so many adults come up to me and say, we run one of the leading, we founded one of the leading youth environmental education organizations here in the U.S., Earth Echo International, 15 years ago to address this. And I've had so many adults come up to me and be like, because of the education programs you have in classrooms, my kids are coming home to me and nagging me that we have to start um, recycling, that we need to do renewable energy, that we should get electric cars, that we need, I need to vote differently and care about the environment. And I had no idea about food and meat and X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Kids are our greatest tool. Young people are our greatest tool, not only to prime them to change their behavior and care about these issues as they grow up, but they're our greatest 
uh, warrior at yeah. home because of the influence that they have on parents. And so we have missed a tremendous opportunity over the last few decades by ignoring essentially as the environmental education and investment in education because that is how you grow a constituency, I firmly believe. So you need to have the good storytelling that can capture people's imaginations, get them excited, reach disparate audiences with different means of telling story. Mm -hmm. But you also need to follow that up with education and focus on young people so that they can then both grow up to be ocean advocates, but can also influence the adults and the people in their communities to be ocean advocates. That's the only way that we grow a constituency and then we don't have to fight the legislative battles to protect. I mean, can you imagine, who would have thought we'd be fighting to protect the Endangered Species Act? I mean, Greg, it's yeah, lunacy. Yeah. But we're fighting these political battles now because we have not invested in growing a constituency of environmental advocates and, in this country. And, and, the, and the information's gotta be good information too. It's gotta be, it's got to be honest. It's got to be scientifically Absolutely. accurate. And I know that you do work uh, with uh, Shark Week, uh, with Discovery, as do I. And I'll tell you a story. When they first asked me to do, uh, I've been hosting uh, a program, uh, being a major host of Alien Sharks of the Deep over the last six or seven years. And when they first asked me to do it, you know, I said no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they they had never had anybody say no to them. and Because and it, it was the most popular week in all of TV programming, I think. Mm -hmm. And they said, "Why?" And I said, "Well, because you 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 stretch the truth. You're you're you, you, amongst uh, the scientific community. You make people think there's megalodons alive still, yeah. and that you also uh, stimulate fear of sharks in the in the population. And I, I don't really want to be be part of that." And they said, "Well, gosh." And I said, "Well, I'll do it under two conditions." I said, "If you stick to the facts, and if you don't try to make me uh, say that sharks are dangerous or that I'm afraid of them." And they kind of went, um, well, all right. And I said, and if you do this, I said, I guarantee you, we're gonna have a we're gonna have a better show than if you didn't, because uh, I had great material. It was deep sea sharks, right? So it's alien sharks of the deep. The first the first episode we filmed uh, in Japan, and there was a, a, a juvenile sperm whale died naturally, and. A local scientist had put it in a freezer, big freezer, and and we dragged this thing down to 2,000 feet. And we anchored it, and then we had three submarines. We sat down and just watched the first uh, phases of the whale whale fall ecology. You know, there's a whole ecology around dead mm -hmm. whales on the seafloor because whales have been dying and falling to the seafloor for millions of years, and various forms of life have evolved to live on the dead carcass, mm -hmm. which will actually provide nutrition for many decades because of the slow decay of the oils in the, in the bones. So we went down there and we saw the hagfish come in and the six gill sharks tearing this thing apart. And it was a fascinating program. And then we laid in uh, goblin sharks. I mean, oh, yeah. oh goblin sharks, yeah. I, I mean, that looks like the guy that used to hide under my bed when I was about nine years old. <laughs> totally. You know, this, I mean, and so we had a fact filled program about deep sea sharks. Nothing was made up. And I think they said it was one of their most popular programs that year. Uh, yeah. So we had, a, we had a very, they did try to make me, one time they, they were trying to get me like to exhibit some fear. They said, so uh, uh, Dr. Stone, what would it be like? How would you feel? What would the shark do if you were in the water with a goblin shark, you know? And I said, well, I'd be very interested, but the problem is the shark would swim away from me because it would be scared of me, you know? So I think it's important we get the messaging right, we get it, we get it accurate. If we don't yeah. get it accurate, in this day and age with social media, you're toast, man, if you don't, if you don't oh, have yeah. the facts correct. And then the, the, the part that tends to be the yawner and puts people to sleep is the public policy that yeah. public policy, all it is, is a system of rules that we as a community agree on of how we're going to behave in our in large numbers. And in the old days in Africa, it was, you know, 100,000 years ago, it was 60 of us sitting around a campfire every night talking about 
what was right and what was wrong. Well, today it's millions of people, billions of people mm -hmm. trying to make cohesive decisions together. And I'll say uh, there's been some pro there's been some progress there. Uh, California just banned uh, plastic straws. Mm -hmm. yeah. Now, that may sound like a minor win, but I, I'm very happy about that. I mean, here you, you have a straw that you use it for all of, you know, two minutes. Yep. And then it's around for hundreds, maybe thousands of years as a, as a piece of garbage that can be ingested by birds or cause all kinds of havoc. And, the, you know, the U.N. has recently uh, come, come awake on the ocean through some of uh, the sustainable development goals. And uh, there's a few other things that are happening. So I'm encouraged by this confluence of, on the one hand, I think we're beginning to see the results of the fantastic storytelling that's happened here and there over the years, starting with the undersea world of Jacques Cousteau. And then scuba got us underwater. Then scuba gear enabled a whole generation to take their cameras underwater. And suddenly, bam, all the magazines are full of underwater pictures. And now the world has opened up to, okay, the oceans are important, we'll make some decisions about not, not trashing it. But, you know, I would say it's not enough by any means. No, so, it's not, because when you think about the SDGs, you bring the Sustainable Development Goals, the UN Sustainable Development Goals, I mean, the oceans is like one of them. Yeah. Uh, and there's, what, 17? 17, 17. There's way too many of yeah. them. Again, communications 101, that the UN doesn't always do a terrific job. I'm a big fan of the UN, but, like, too many. sometimes they yeah. have a big issue yeah. with communications. But the oceans is one of them, and... You know, one we of had my to fight for that, we and we had to fight for that. Fight for yeah. that. Yeah. And and at the top of the list are things about like feeding people and re poverty reduction, and you know, and and hunger reduction, and all these other issues. And yet, what what astounds me is that if we don't get the ocean right, we are going to be unable <laughs> to do any of those things. Yeah. Well, yeah. and I think another thing that is very important, especially in storytelling, is connecting the dots for people. Mm -hmm. um, Philippe doesn't eat seafood never really has. I have recently stopped eating seafood and I can't tell you how many times I have the conversation when people say, well, why do you not eat seafood? Are they your friends? And I was like, well, yes. I said, but you know, our seafood right now is really starting to be full of plastics. So for me, I had friends that were like, oh yeah, I'm not going to do plastic straws. They didn't know why they weren't doing plastic straws, but they jumped on the bandwagon, which was awesome. But we need to do a better job by telling people, hey, one of the reasons why we're getting rid of plastic straws, especially in California, because we live right on the ocean, is that plastic is making its way into our waterways, ultimately making it into the ocean. And then it's just getting into the entire ecosystem out there. And so I think as storytelling, you know, you have to also point out to people, close, you know, follow, follow the dots for them or so they can follow the dots and kind of figure out why these things are affecting them personally. Mm -hmm. um, because then it's, I can't tell you now people are like, Oh really? And I said, yeah, you know, you should look at the whale recently that just washed up and how much plastic it was yeah. in it. And they are technically when whales die now, they are biohazard because they're so full of so many toxins. Um, you know, and then people say, Oh, well that's crazy. I say, well, that's also why we should be banning a little bit more of the single-use plastic. And then when you close that loop for people, they have that aha moment and say, oh, oh, so that plastic straw is actually affecting me when I, quote unquote, throw it away. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, and we got to take it to the next level. You know, I, I, I look back, I do these sort of these thoughts, I look back in history and I say, okay, when there were big changes in the world, when things really turned a corner, what drove it? What drove it? And how did we behave to get there? Mm -hmm. And a, a good one is World War II. You know, we still look back at that as a, as a, as a, as a moral compass, as a turning point for, for ultimately the better, although horrendous things happened during that time. And at the beginning of the war, the president, the United States President, uh, FDR, Roosevelt, called all the, the car manufacturers to Washington, D.C., got him in a room with the Secretary of Defense, and he said, 
okay guys we're gonna need uh, you know a thousand ten thousand uh, tanks every six months we're gonna need uh, 25,000 jeeps we're gonna he gave them a, a shopping list of things that they needed for the war effort and the, all the car manufacturers they said oh mr. president I'm very sorry we can't do this and he said well why not he says well if we do that we can't make cars and he said, oh, you don't understand, do you? You're not going to make cars anymore. <laughs> and if you look back, we didn't. there were no cars made, by and large, during the war. All production was, was thrown at the problem at hand, which was to win the war. And, you know, we're, we're still making cars. And when it comes to our attention to the, to the oceans yep, and to the that's environment. A, yeah. That's a great... Great analogy. That's a great analogy. <laughs> we're still making cars, people. We have to drop everything and pay attention to this because otherwise we are we are we're going down the toilet well and i think Ashton made a great point about you know the, this idea you know when you talk about health for example with microplastics but then you know there are other things you know i, I was giving a speech to folks in um in the in the oil and gas industry uh, a few years ago and i instead of trying to just rail on about climate change i just said you know how many of you uh, have family or friends who are in the military and quite a few of them raised their hands. And I said, well, let's talk about that then. Uh, one out of eight casualties in the war in Iraq were escorting uh, fuel convoys. Um, really? Huh. The, the, the oil, uh, dependency on oil is one of the DOD's, Department of Defense's like, most hated uh, dependencies. It's their number one line item, cost, is oil. Um, they're big investors in renewable energy. So can we get beyond this partisan infighting around climate change and can we all agree that you know providing our warfighters with the best tools and equipment is is the best way to go that's a good um, approach and yeah. and and the audience was very uh, in agreement with that and and so you know when ashton talks about some people are really motivated by health you know there are other people motivated by security that's what we need to do a better job uh, that's a great example of, of, of how we do a better job of understanding the motivations and what our public and our, and our audience is interested in. Mm -hmm. I like to tell a story about, uh, you're familiar with this, Greg, uh, uh, the, the, the piracy in, in the Red Sea. Yeah. You know, yeah. The, the, fundamentally, and this is actually a case study that the Department of Defense now uses to teach uh, Marines about environmental issues. Because uh, a friend of mine, a friend of ours, is a Marine and he yeah. sent it to me. And he's like, oh us. my God, this is what you always talk about. And, um, Essentially, you know, a few decades ago, uh, illegal fishing off the Somali coast by Europe, China, Russia uh, caused fishermen to arm themselves to protect, try and protect their historical fisheries. And they ended up hijacking some of those fishing boats and they got a lot of money and ransom to return those boats. And the light bulb went off and all of a sudden you started to then get non-state actors like uh, Al Qaeda in the Maghreb and Al Shabaab and these other groups that started to get involved in the piracy issue and the hijacking of these boats because there was millions of dollars at stake. And so... As, as the summarized in this, this, uh, in this one article I was reading that's uh, part of uh, the DOD's report, a few million dollars worth of fisheries conservation could have avoided the piracy crisis, <laughs> yeah. which now today costs the global economy somewhere between 80 to 100 billion dollars uh, in direct costs for interdiction, yeah, no, costs tens of billions in trade. It has led are, to the rise of terrorist organizations like Al-Shabaab and Al-Qaeda, and we don't need to uh, talk about how right. that affects yeah. all of us, yeah. and, and directly you know, Al-Shabaab just had another car bombing a few months ago that You're, killed 200 innocent people. So, Philippe, you are so dead right on this. Yeah, We need to connect those, those dots, as Ashton says. We need a better job connecting And we dots. did that. You know, I, I, you know, but I'll, for the listeners, I was the chief ocean scientist at Conservation International mm -hmm. for 10 years. Mm -hmm. And we were, uh, we were trying to get audiences with the Congress on, uh, on environmental issues. And we were, we were getting sent to sort of mid-level, low-level staff members whenever we put in a request. 
until we had two we had two great ideas. <laughs> the first one was we started bringing celebrities with us. <laughs> always helps. Uh, always helps. Harrison Ford, love Harrison. He's a trustee at, at Conservation International. And when we said, uh, you know, uh, we'd like to come talk to you about the oceans, and Harrison Ford's going to be with us. Everybody said, yeah. "Come!" Yeah. We even got to see Hillary Clinton. She was the she was the foreign minister the, uh, at the time. But the other thing we did is we said we want to come and talk to you about national security. And we got John McCain. And they're in, <laughs> and yep. they're in. And uh, it, it's it's not a political issue. It's a bipartisan issue when yep. you uh, when you discuss uh, when you discuss it in terms of the security of the nation. And I loved your uh, your your connecting it with the military operations, Philippe. That's absolutely true and it's absolutely brilliant i hadn't really heard anybody uh with that kind of an expose on that another little comment on the on the congress uh there's a bipartisan group uh called the uh conservation caucus uh organization and they have an annual uh iccf yeah we know them yep iccf and they reached out to me uh one year and they said greg can you get us a speaker uh for the oceans and they said they have to gave me some requirements. A, they have to really know their subject. B, they have to be a good speaker. And C, they have to be a Republican. <laughs> and I said, I got just the guy for you. And it's my good friend, Bill Wrigley, uh, who at the time was a trustee at CI and co-developed the Ocean Health Index mm-hmm. with me. I said, this guy's great. He's a free market Republican. He's uh, very passionate, very knowledgeable about the ocean. So a couple of days before uh, the event, uh, they said, well, uh, can we see Mr. Wrigley's presentation? So I said, sure. So I popped in the PDF of it, and I got this frantic phone call late Sunday night for, I think it was a Monday night or a Tuesday dinner. And I said, Greg, Greg, they can't, he, can't, he can't give this talk. And I said, well, why? He said, because on slide 12, he says the United States needs to ratify the Law of the Sea Treaty. And, and he said, that's too controversial. And I said, what do you mean it's too controversial? I said, we're one of two countries in the world that hasn't ratified it, and the U.S. military has a strong position. I believe every administration, Republican and Democrat, has wanted to ratify it. Bush's and all of yeah, them. Yeah, it's, it's been it, a few it gets, recalcitrant It gets hung up because yeah. of, uh, there's, a, there's a group uh, that, doesn't, that thinks the U.N. is too strong in yeah. world affairs. And yeah. I'm not passing judgment on them or anything, but it's just, just the way it is. So I, I said to the guy, that I said, I said, listen, I said, the days of the Soviet Union are over. You can't invite somebody to give a talk and then tell them what to say. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so Bill Wrigley gave this brilliant talk. We had, you know, top senators and congressmen there. And at that slide, there was a standing ovation. It was like the best, the best moment of, mm-hmm. uh, of, of bringing that home. You know, I think uh, to, the, to the listeners, you know, it, is, it, it sounds like a complicated subject matter, and it is. The ocean's big. It's vast. We still haven't even explored uh, uh, large portions of it. You know, I think we've visited maybe, I think the figures up six, seven, eight percent of the sea floor. Mm-hmm. Uh, we actually have better maps of the surface of uh, Venus and uh, Mars and the backside of the moon than we do of our own ocean. So there's a lot of mystery out there, which is part of our, why we're in the game, right? We, we enjoy that, the That's dives exactly. and exotic locations and Antarctica and all that. He was able to... He was know, such a unique, incredible guy. I, I, I... And then at a unique, specific time in history, too. I think uh, mm-hmm. it's going to be a chorus of us that are out there because, as I said, you know, he commanded an audience of tens of millions with one documentary television show. That yeah. doesn't happen anymore. And so we well, it doesn't. Be, you don't get that kind of audience now? That's, yeah, I, I know <laughs> you, we wish. What's, what's uh, a good audience for a show? I mean, the top shows that, on television, like 
Like I mean, even the Super Bowl didn't get that. You know, they're just they're lucky if they get. Oh, is that yeah. right? It's just it's an abundance of riches. There's yeah, too many options. What the Super Bowl. I think it might be more than that, more than that, but I think it was American Idol. I was like reading one day. Million? It was like twenty million or something like that. Is a great night for them, and that's like. And that used to be regular ratings yeah, back in the day. Yeah. So yeah. back in the day of of ABC, NBC, and CBS. Yeah. That's it. So it's 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 just a different medium landscape, yeah. and. Um, you know what? What, as you pointed out, what was so exciting and, and, and what's been so amazing about what Ashton brings to the table um, in our professional career is is this perspective and diversity of, of storytelling and, and thinking about how do you reach a different audience and and what appeals to a different audience. Yeah. Um, uh, we all need to do a better job, I think. Uh, and you know, for those funders out there, for those you know nonprofit types out there we need to take communications more seriously and we need to invest in communications a lot more yeah um you know it's it's always the afterthought you know uh, uh it's really you know i've never i've never seen many organizations i've rarely seen an organization write a write a, a grant check uh to do better communications it's all about publishing papers and doing the science and all of that's really important but um, if we you, don't you have hear a, that, a everybody public that cares, we need then some, it's all a waste of investment. Ashlyn and Philippe are great stewards of this of this mantle and a very good way to support this communication. This communication. Well, and yourself and, as well. I mean, great. Well, you know, as right. a scientist, uh, um, you've you've truly been one of the great scientific uh, storytellers. Yeah, communicators, and and because um, there's not a lot of them out there that are able to do both. That free. takes. Because it takes two different, yeah, yeah, it's two different parts of your yeah, brain, yeah, and that's yeah. actually when people come up after we give speeches and they say, "Well, what can we do?" You know, I'm a scientist and I'm working on this, and I say, "Continue your work, and figure out a way to break through the noise." You yeah, know, you like your work is amazing, and the you noise. have to also think, "Okay, now how am I going to get it out?" Because nobody's going to sit down and just read a regular old scientific uh, report, but if you can figure out a way to get a hook you can figure out a way to make it so people can relate it to their everyday life you know that's that's when people get excited and that's that's when the real change can happen yeah. hey here, here's a softball what's your favorite ocean animal <gasps> and oh, why so hard. <laughs> well what are your favorite i know i always say to, I, I hate to pick it oh my gosh oh my gosh oh my gosh okay i know that is a hard one Oh my gosh, there's like 8,000 going through my head. Can I pick two? Yeah, pick two. Okay, I love orcas, just because they're so amazing. And they just, I mean, AKA what? killer whale. AKA yeah, killer whales. Um, because in a, they're also like the king of the ocean, because yeah. in a fight between a uh, killer whale and a great white, the killer whale oh, that's wins. that's right, yeah, yeah. Which I think is just incredible. Um, <laughs> uh, but also I love uh, 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 goliath groupers. Um, we were able to swim with a few uh, during the filming of, of uh, our last show, Caribbean Pirate Treasure. Um, actually, we had a couple, and they are so friendly. They are the golden retrievers of the ocean, and I will <laughs> never, ever, ever eat grouper because they literally just come up to you and they want to meet you. They have personality, and yeah. They have personalities, and I have gotten two tours from two separate uh groupers that wanted to show me their reef in their house and they come up and they almost nudge you and then they're like hey come on lady you know, follow yeah. me it's awesome. and you follow it's them around Teddy Tucker and I used to go out to this reef in Bermuda every year it was a shipwreck uh, called the tombstone wreck and we got to know the fish year after year the same fish because you can actually identify them you take yeah. pictures of their of the patterns on the outside mm -hmm. and they would come over and hang out with us and, right. and one year I started looking at the pictures and I said Teddy it's the same fish as <laughs> last year. It's it was, the same dude. It wasn't a Goliath grouper, but it was a grouper. Yeah. What about you, Felicia? I you? love octopus. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, they are so amazing. Um, this, 
enigmatic, brilliantly for an for a invertebrate, uh, you know, the, the most intelligent invertebrate uh, in the world, and and the fact that they can change color and change texture, and they have this, you know, this this level of intelligence that's been proven over and over. Um, and they're just like if there's an alien on Earth, I think it's I think it's an octopus. They're just so fascinating. We are not alone. No, we are not alone. I tell you, thank God they're as small as they are because otherwise they would they would rule everything. Um, so I would have to pick uh, an octopus, and then maybe second, maybe I've got something for weird-looking animals. I love uh, hammerhead sharks. They're just so the great hammerheads yeah, odd, that we were diving with in, in Bimini. Incredible. Um, they're just so weird-looking up yeah. close, but yeah. but fascinating as well. You know, an octopus, uh, We, uh, when I was worked at the New England Aquarium, they used to climb out of their tanks. They'd, yeah. sh- they'd shimmy up the pipes and over into another tank and eat stuff, and then they'd shimmy up back and then go on the back. pipes and go back in. Yeah. And it took us a while to figure out what was going on, but we were seeing, like, <laughs> dead like animals in one tank, and we're like, what happened last night? And then we figured out we had to make a lid on top of the thing. Everybody said, oh, they're so smart. And I said, well, if they're really smart, they would have put the crab shells in the penguin tray. <laughs> 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 but we did figure them out, you know. Um, you know, something just occurred to me, just circling back to our previous conversation, and that punch through, I think you said it, Ashlyn, how do we punch through the noise? And that's one challenge that um, your grandfather didn't have so much because there wasn't a lot of noise. He had the great challenge of, you know, making noise, just period. But uh, I know that you worked with Steve Irwin, and he was good at punching through that noise, you know. And he also was good at... Uh, uh, getting a message across that wasn't preachy at all. Mm-hmm. It was exciting. He was controversial, but that was part of his his appeal. He was also ran. A, uh, I never had the honor of meeting him. I followed in his tracks once in Fiji. I went. I did a shark dive there. They had a uh, shark feeding dive. You done that in, ba- in uh, Banga Lagoon? I, you just I did, did it. it. Yeah. You did just that. Yeah. Well, he had done it like a few months before I was there, and, and somebody said, "Yeah, he just came with one guy." He had a camera guy, was this camera guy, sound guy, producer, grip, everything, and him. I don't know, it was, but you worked with him for a while, didn't you? I did. I, we did a show called Ocean's Deadliest together, actually. And um, it was actually the, the, when the circumstances when he was killed by uh, Stingray oh. while we were filming. Uh, but he was a terrific guy, one of a kind, so enthusiastic, so warm, so friendly, only slightly less enthusiastic in real life than he was on camera. Really? Uh, <laughs> and he was just so much fun to be around. And Steve, yeah, they, they figured out a terrific formula, and, and he was the right personality for, for that show, and it inspired so many, uh, so many people to, to love the environment, you know, at, at, uh, at large. Um, and care about animals that aren't necessarily cuddly and cute. Yeah. I mean, people really loved crocodiles uh, because of him. I mean, they really, it, they turned, it was like a PR makeover yeah. for crocodiles with Steve Irwin. It was yep. incredible. It, what did you think of that dive that if you did that same he did that dive I did that dive you did that dive just for the listeners it's a dive where uh, it's a commercial operation and they bring down a 55 gallon barrel of frozen dead fish to 90 feet I remember that and there's a a coral stone wall that goes up about three feet and that's it and the tourists have to stand on one side of the stone wall and the guy starts to feed sharks And and we had bull sharks we had tiger sharks we had a lot of gray reef sharks all coming in to to feed and it actually, they had to encourage the sharks to come in. They didn't like get into a feeding frenzy. It was more like trying to get them to come. I thought it was a very dangerous kind of an operation actually, because they were operating at a pretty deep depth. And one day I think some tourist's gonna get bitten on that, that dive. I don't know, what did you think? I, 
I'm torn with the shark feeding scenario. Um, you know, it's 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 a challenge because what's the lesser evils uh, or the lesser evil, I should say. When you look at the shark feeding operations, that's bringing income into tourist communities. Yeah. Whereas they might otherwise fish for the sharks. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's a complicated issue. I think it, 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 it varies from operation to operation. The operation that we were out with, um, they actually invest a lot of money back into the community to pay them not to fish sharks. They also police uh, a shark MPA that's been established in the area that they advocated for. And they were doing long-term research on uh, the any behavioral impacts of feeding the sharks. And so they, I think, are, are, are good, um, good stewards there in that they're, they're investing in the education and they, they have, a, have a talk to all their divers ahead of time before they get in the water about the sharks, why they're important, the research that they're doing, where their money's going, why it's supporting the local community yeah. and local fishermen. Mm-hmm. So I think it can be a, a really great tool. And then there are some other operations that are, that are pretty exploitative and, um, and not great. So, yeah. you know, I, it, I it really agree. I think, you have to, I think we have to be broad-minded about these things, that if the net impact, the net effect is positive, on the shark populations of, let's say, the South Pacific or Fiji writ large, that uh, feeding, or I guess the, t- the scientific term is provisioning mm-hmm. the animals, the downsides are that when you start to introduce food that's not part of the natural system, you're, they begin to depend on that food. And if they don't get it, then you could potentially be throwing the ecosystem out mm-hmm. of whack. And there are places where dolphins are fed in the wild as mm-hmm. well, also highly controversial. But I think as we uh, continue to grow and inhabit this planet in the way that we are, uh, we need to uh, have for future more, generations for future generations and here's our next guest yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, uh, you know I I, uh, I think you have to I almost look at these animals like ambassadors you know the 100%. the ones that are that are either in an aquarium that's another area you know is it okay to have captive animals in an aquarium well hell yeah I mean that's how I another driver in my youth was the New England Aquarium the first major aquarium in the world that brought a big tank and the ecosystem into the inner city you know those animals you know yeah they're wild animals you capture them and you put them on on display and some people don't like that but otherwise those inner city kids are never going to get a chance to see what a goliath grouper looks like or Mm -hmm. a penguin or something and hopefully their exposure to an animal and the beauty and the mystery will impact uh, how they see themselves in the context of the earth and and the ocean system so um you know and that the the whole parrot the whole world you know the developing countries and the least developed countries and the developed countries you know we the ethic today uh, one of the one of the really important tools we have to save the oceans of course is to create marine protected areas mm-hmm. and that's uh, uh, it makes sense uh, you know the United States created the first park on land in Yellowstone an early part of the 20th century and created by one of our presidents who liked to hunt and his idea was let's protect them so I can go out and shoot them you know and that's okay it, it protected them technically um, Yellowstone was 1915 um, or something no 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 it was 18 it was when Grant was president he established the initial oh it was Grant right it was President Grant so 1860s I think technically 1870 anyway I would say late latter 19th century okay President thank Grant established it thank you it was Roosevelt, who did like Yosemite and those kinds uh, of places in the teens. Ah, uh, okay, but okay. The, technically, you. Yellowstone was from the late 1800s. Yeah, oh, is that right? Okay, so Yellowstone was 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 the late 18th, and then then uh, Roosevelt. You know, the idea of protecting, creating parks, creating reserves started on land, uh, 
in the United States, and now we're beginning to apply it in the ocean. And it's a great tool, and I've been involved in it uh, part of my career. Uh, but we've got to do it with, with a, a very carefully, especially in parts of the world where uh, poor nations are depending on the ocean for their daily food, because there's a t tendency for some of our Western uh, values and our Western ethics to be imposed on countries that don't have the same options that we have. They don't have the same economic systems that we have. They, don't, they can't go to the store and buy stuff. They've, their refrigerator is the ocean. Mm -hmm. yep. And they don't have a refrigerator, literally. And they, in order to have fresh food, they go into the ocean every day and get it. And when you come in and say, okay, we're going to shut this whole area down and let it go back to wilderness, because that's what we want to have happen, and the ocean's in trouble, and it needs to, this has to happen. That doesn't work everywhere. So I, I think there's a new, a new philosophy, a new system coming up which is it's integrated right you, you you have to accommodate the people that live there mm -hmm. because the people we are now part of the ocean ecosystem we've been around long enough now that we have to kind of realize that we're that we're part of it and we have to accommodate the needs of local people i think the areas where you really do need to to drill down on are the industrial scale fishing you know with the draggers yeah. you were talking about earlier yeah. but um the even the word marine protected area it it, it, it rings a bad tone in certain countries. So I've started to use things like regeneration zones, fish factories, and that goes, wow, we want one of those. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I want us in nomenclature matters. Language I want yeah. matters. Yeah. Language matters. And uh, I think it's, it's this recognition of what we've been talking about, right, for, for, for this, this conversation is that it's the oceans connect to all of us and we need to meet those needs but not deplete those needs. And and, um, and, and recognize that human beings are part of that system. Exactly. Um, an integral part of that system and a dependent part of that system um, in order to build a, the kind of world that we all Very well put. dream of. Yeah. And I think that might be a, a, a good way for us to, to bring our ship to shore and uh, <laughs> throw the lines on the dock. We've had a nice cruise uh, of us here and we're, uh, we're all sort of uh, at various points in our scuba tank of life, you know. That's right. You're about maybe halfway through your tank. I'm a little bit ahead of you there. and. Uh, uh, we've got a long way to go. We've got a long way All to go. Us. We're going to do some more diving. And I'd like to um, uh, end with a qu another quote. I love quotes. And it's from a book that I'm going to, I'm going to give you and uh, Ashlyn. It's, a, it's an antique book oh my about oh my the ocean. And it's one of my, uh, one of my uh, favorite books written in the 1860s. Wow. It's called The Water World. And it's pretty much what was known about the oceans at that time. There's nice illustrations in it. But the, the quote that I love from that is about the deep sea. Right? And the guy has a quote in there. He says, now this is the ocean. Now think about it. Back in the late 1800s where we actually knew absolutely nothing about it. They knew it. it was blue. They knew it was blue and they knew when you went down, it was a mystery world. Every once in a while, some strange creature would wash up or something. And he calls it a world of wonder where creation seems no more the works of nature but her dreams. Ooh. That is beautiful. I love that. I feel like that's what the movie Avatar was based on. Yeah. <laughs> All so, dreams. My dear friends, thank you so much. Pleasure. And, uh, Thanks for having us. We'll this has uh, been wonderful. do many good things. All right. Thank you.